0: So let's talk about uh, today, there are words that we all use, that we know what they mean, I know what they mean, you know what they mean, but but if I were to ask you what they happen to mean, you couldn't define it, right? And we wouldn't be able to put a definition around it. One of those words in our culture is the word cool, right? When I say cool, uh, you would know exactly what I mean by that, Uh, We use that phrase all the time, right? That he is so cool, or he's really cool, or hey, are we cool? And and, uh, we know what we mean, but if I were to ask you to define it, you would have a hard time defining it, because why is something that's colder than something else better uh, than something else? In fact, then you come to the phrase, you know, she's so hot, and and then which is it, right? Is it hot or is it cold, and which one is better? And and as you grow older, uh, you, you begin to lose interest, quite honestly, in what is cool. right? That that we always thought our parents just were no longer cool. The truth is, is they were just too tired to care as as to what is cool anymore. And and the fact of the matter is, is that the older you get, the less aware of what is cool, uh, is, is reality for you. That's the reason I surround myself with cool people, right? Is just so that I can be cool? That's why you were hired just to keep the cool factor at at where it needs to be. And, And the church is the same way. There are words and phrases that we use that, that we know what we mean, but we don't really know what we mean. An example of that is the phrase, well, God showed up. When we say God showed up in a service, what does that mean, God showed up in a service? And, and we all know what it means, uh, and we, we could all identify a service that God showed up in, right? We know the difference between a service that God showed up in and, and one that he was like, I don't even know where that is and how to get there, and I've um, not been invited into it. But there's always that one theological weirdo who, who says, wait a minute, God didn't show up. God is omnipresent, and, and he's everywhere all the time. So he didn't just show up for this service. He was already there, to which we all want to look at them and say, hey, shut up. Uh, We understand what you're saying theologically, but we don't like you. You're not cool. And and because we know what we mean when we say God just showed up. Let me me give you one more word that we're going to spend a few minutes looking at uh, together, and we're going to look at as a church in in the new year. And it's one of those words that we kind of know what it means. But if you were to try to pin us all down, uh, we would go, I don't know. I don't know what that means. And the word is the word anointing. In fact, if you've been around church circles, you would put the in front of it in all capital letters, right? The anointing. And I want the anointing or I want to walk in the anointing. I want to flow with the anointing of God. And oh, wow, that sermon was anointed or that service was really, really anointed. And we don't know what to do with that phrase. We don't know what to do with that word in Scripture, And uh, we have two choices when we come to a word that we don't know what to do with it. We can cut it out of the scripture, not use it in our vernacular, which is what some tribes have opted to do with the word anointing. They just cut it out altogether. Or we can keep it and we can deal with it and we can try to understand it. But, But here's the deal with this word anointing. If we cut it out, the problem with that is it's not a made up word. It's a Bible word. It comes straight from the Bible. It did not come from some weirdo in a light blue suit in the 60s who decided to make up a word called anointed or the anointing. It comes straight out of the word of God. And so we need to keep it. And we need to dig in and understand it so that we can address it properly and we can unpack it because as we unpack this thing, here's what I know will be true, it will have a great impact on us. And so first of all, the word anointing, what does it mean? In both the Hebrew and the Greek, the two original languages of the Bible, it means uh, to put oil on or to smear oil on. In fact, let me just give you this definition. It means to smear or rub oil on someone. Uh, He anointed the high priest. And that sounds really weird uh, unless you're into essential oils, right? How many of you are into and and use uh, essential oils? I'm just kidding. We know who you are already. You're a lot like CrossFit people, right? We we, we know who you are, uh, uh, but but in Bible times they would just do that, right? In fact, in Bible times they were just that. They were essential. They, they were thought of as good medicine. They were thought of a, a, as very valuable. This morning I, I walked out of the house and and I grabbed a couple of these bottles. Uh, off the counter, out of the bucket where the bottles are. And and, uh, Meredith said, no, don't take that one. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, just don't take that one. I said, why? She said, it's expensive. I said, Meredith, it's for God. And uh, (laughs) she said, yeah, but you'll lose it. And I'm not going to hold God responsible. You'll lose it. And so take these. These are cheaper. And, and the, in fact, these are empty is what she said. So take these empty bottles for your little illustration. But, but those of us who are into uh, this essential oil stuff, we, we know the formulas, right? And we know the, the voodoo and what to do with it and where to put it and all, all of those things. Uh, but, but some of you may not be familiar with this one. Anybody know what this is? Nobody knows what this is. You can't see it. It's Moroccan oil. Anybody know what Moroccan oil is? Raise your hand if you know what Moroccan oil is. Like, one of you knows what Moroccan oil is? You're afraid to admit that you know what Moroccan oil is? Because you're kind of going like this. You can, there's not, I mean, it's not like CBD oil. It's, uh... (laughs) legitimate stuff. Anybody, raise your hand big and tall like you're proud of it if you know what Moroccan oil is. Any of you females or males use this in in your hair? Here's the deal. When we brought Limley into our home, we we brought somebody with black skin into our home, and here's the deal with black skin. It has more melatonin. Obviously, that's the reason it's darker, right? But the other thing you don't know is because it has more melatonin, it has more collagen, which is why darker people don't age as quickly and as rough as people who have lighter skin because the collagen is what keeps it plump and and supple and moist and all of that. But but the hair is a different story with with African people, okay? And so we had to be introduced, even though Meredith and Catherine and and, uh, me all have curly hair, we, we know curly hair. Curly hair is tricky, actually. And, and all of you who don't have curly hair, you're like, we wish we had curly hair. And all of us who had curly hair when we were little, we're like, we wish we didn't. And, and uh, that's the way the devil works, by the way. But, but the truth about curly hair, especially from African descent curly hair, the deal with curly hair is it's not cylinder. It's not just round all the way through the shaft of the hair. It, it has angles on it, like almost like a square or a triangle. And the angles are what creates the curves because the cylinder is just straight. But these angles on the hair creates curves, which turns it every which direction. And, and because the hair turns every which direction, the oils that come out of your scalp never reach the end of your hair. And so consequently, it's drier than, than People who have really, really straight hair—all of you seen people who have just straight as a board hair—and and, you know, if they leave it, it unkept, it will be stringy and oily because the oil travels down that express lane, the H.O.V. lane, right down their hair all the way to the end of it, and, and it will stay oily, right? And, and but when you have uh, really dry hair, you have to use this product, and this product is like uh, crack in terms of its price. And we started buying this stuff, and a bottle like this would be over $100. And you put it on your hair, well, I found it in Israel. That's the reason you didn't know what it is, is because it says Moroccan oil in Hebrew on the front, because I buy it in Israel from the Dead Sea, and I buy it much cheaper over there. But but when you learn to put that in your scalp, it's oiling the scalp. And so it, it's an illustration to biblical days that it was an essential thing, that it was so dry, there was no water, it never rained. And so when you had a guest over, you would give them oil to refresh their skin or refresh their hair with as they came in. But it was also good medicine. But in the Bible, there's also a purpose for the oil. We know it's symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Those of us who have been around at all, we know that. But, but there was an anointing that happened with the oil in the Bible. And God instructed his leaders to anoint other leaders. And when you did it, you smeared or poured uh, poured oil on on someone's head. And and that was setting them aside for some very, very special work. And and there were different types of people that he did this with. The the first group of people were priests. Exodus uh, 28. God instructs uh, Moses to anoint Aaron and his sons as the priest for for the house of God. And and Every, for years and years and years. Every time there was a new priest, the new priest was anointed with oil and, and they would put on special clothes, which by the way, they weren't drab clothes. When you see representations of the suit that the priest would put on, it's the exact opposite opposite of the Pentecostal people that I grew up with. The, the, when God became the tailor, it was something fancy and pretty special. In, in fact, it would be something that Limley would want and, and Limley would wear because it's just fancy. And, and, and the priest was anointed by God, and he was set apart for a very special work. Another person in the Old Testament that was anointed is the king. The king was anointed by the prophet, right? And you see this all throughout the scripture, Saul in 1 Samuel 10 was anointed to be the king and just six chapters later uh, David was anointed to replace him as the king. And so David was so anal retentive and he was so particular about this thing called the anointing that when David's followers were like, there's Saul killing he was like, absolutely not. I'm not going to kill him. That's God's anointed. I'm not going to get in the way of God's anointing. God gives them anointing. God can remove the anointing, but that's up to God. I'm not screwing around with that. And David said, absolutely not. So you had priests and you had kings who were anointed and set apart by God. But there was a third group of people in the Old Testament, prophets. In 1 Kings, in chapter 19, God tells a prophet, Elijah, to anoint another prophet, his replacement, Elisha. And so you have priests and kings and prophets that are anointed by God, and they're set apart which is so fascinating because all three of them are so very distinct and unique from one another. But, but all throughout uh, the, the Old Testament, there is this promise of this one who is going to come, who will be all three, prophet, priest, and, and king, and we will call him the Messiah. You know what Messiah means? Anointed one. It means he's the oily one. It means he is the one who has been anointed with the oil. And you come to this passage in Luke chapter 4 in the Gospels. Watch this. In Luke chapter 4, it says the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. That's to Jesus. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. Some scholars believe that that just happened to be the daily reading. Others think that Jesus went to that Uh, scripture on purpose. We we don't know for sure, but but he unrolled it, and he found the place where, where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. Who? The Spirit has anointed me. This is the Spirit. Anointing is related to the Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free. Now now skip down a couple of verses to verse 21. The scripture you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. You've heard me joke about this text that Jesus dropped the mic and and, and walked out of the synagogue. But what happened in this story is that Jesus walks into the synagogue on a Sabbath and the leader of the synagogue says, hello, rabbi, we're so glad you're here. Would you like to say something to the congregation? Would you like to say a word? And he said, yes, in fact, I would. He takes the big scroll, Isaiah, the biggest scroll in the Bible. He unrolls it. And and as he rolls it back, he says to the audience, I am the Lord's anointed. I am the priest, the prophet, and the king. And I am here now. And I have come on purpose. And I've come for a reason. I'm the Messiah. And here I am in in your midst. And, And in all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The religious folks were looking at Jesus and they were asking him this question. Where do you get your authority from? The the, the Hebrew word is smihah. Where do you get your smihah? It was a whole nother level of anointing. It was a whole nother level of authority. It wasn't just to be a rabbi, this was smiha. Where do you get smiha? And the only way you were allowed to have smiha was to be certified by two rabbis, not two scribes and not two people down the ladder, two all the way at the top called rabbis had to agree and certify you as one with authority and one with smiha. And they asked Jesus this question and Jesus answered this question in a very Hebrew way, by the way. It's very Hebrew when you get A question to ask a question back as your answer. Jesus did that all the time, by the way, if you notice it. It's not just he was playing tricks with people. That was what Hebrews do and did in that day. And so they looked at Jesus and they said to Jesus, Where do you get your smiha? And he looked back at him and said, Where did John get his? Which, by the way, the answer is always in the question in the Hebrew way. And so Jesus is answering the question with a question, and his question was, Where did John get? His. In other words, John is one of the ones who certified me. You remember that, right? In Luke chapter 2, I mean, well, it's in John? I don't remember where else it is, but in in the gospel of John, John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, there's one. John was one, but where's the other one? You know the story, right? When Jesus was baptized, a, a dove descended like the Holy Spirit upon him, and God the Father, in his booming voice, said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. By the way, you don't need two if one of them is God the Father certifying you. So what's my point? My point is the anointing comes from God. You remember when David was anointed? Uh, the, the priest uh, uh, Samuel was afraid, the prophet Samuel was afraid that, that uh, Saul, King Saul was gonna hear that he was going to Jesse's house, remember? And, and the whole point of what God was saying in that story is Saul can't intervene with this this is from me. There's nothing Saul can do to stop this or intervene with it. In fact, David's dad almost left him out, which couldn't happen either, right? When God's involved in it, his own dad could not leave him out. It comes from God Almighty. And and, and so turn over, uh, if you got your Bibles, I don't know if you brought your Bibles today, but if if you do look and on your phone, look, let's go to Exodus chapter 30. Because in Exodus 30, there's this incredible passage where God is giving Moses all of the instructions, for the tabernacle and the wash basin and the incense and all of the things that are gonna be a part of the worship house in that day. And in the middle of the chapter, he lays out this recipe for anointing oil. And he gives Moses all of the spices and all of the portions and all of the descriptions that are gonna play out into this anointing oil and explains that he is supposed to take this concoction and pour it over Aaron's head. But, But within that symbol, the anointing oil, is the significance. And it's important for you to understand the symbol so that you can make sense of the significance and exactly what it is that the anointing is. Exodus chapter 30, let's look at it. In verse 22. Then then the Lord said to Moses, collect choice spices. Highlight that in in your Bible, if you would. Choice uh, spices. I love that word choice. You know what that tells me? That, That God wasn't interested in great value or McCormick when it came to spices. He, he wanted the real deal. He wanted the right deal. He wanted choice spices. He wanted uh, the, the expensive ones. It wasn't uh, enough to have cheap spices, that it had to be a big deal because this was important enough to God. And then he gives him some very detailed instructions and he calls it choice. And I want you to write that down. The anointing is choice. It's both God's choice and and your choice. And so let me go through this explanation and and, and explain to you what the anointing is by describing it to you in a way that God described it, uh, the anointing oil, to Moses. Now let's watch this as this plays out. No, there it is. Collect choice spices, 12 and a half pounds of pure myrrh, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cinnamon, and six and a quarter pounds of uh, fragrant calamus. And he goes on and adds more to it. And he says, in 12 and 5 pounds of cassia, as measured by the weight of the sanctuary shekel, also get one gallon of olive oil. Now, do you see what's playing out here? Do you see how much of this God told Moses to collect? When, when uh, you are cooking something and you put oil in a pan, you're sauteing something, you put a tablespoon, right? Maybe two tablespoons uh, of oil. Uh, th- this is... Gallon. When we pray over people on a regular basis and we anoint them with all this little dab, right? But 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 this is a gallon of this stuff. And, and when we talk about the anointing, there's four characteristics that I want to point out to you that are found in this uh, recipe that we need to understand. Okay, and here, here's the first one: the anointing is abundant it's abundant. It's really the best word to use there. It's abundant because God is a God of abundance. You read in Psalm 133 uh, about this anointing process, and and the psalmist says that, that the oil was poured over Aaron's head and it ran down his beard onto his robe and all the way down his robe onto the hem or the border of his robe. And Moses took this recipe and he mixed up almost 38 pounds of spices and added to it a gallon of olive oil, a whole gallon of it. And you mix it up together and then dump it on Aaron's head. In other words, the anointing from God is all encompassing. It's abundant. It will cover all of you. And it is enough to anoint you at church. It's enough to anoint you in in your job. It's enough to anoint you in your family. It's enough to anoint you when you go to a ball game and get mad at a referee. It is enough to anoint you in every facet of your life. You can go to work and be anointed. You can go everywhere. And you can be anointed in every area of your life. But, But often, we get stuck in the mindset that the anointing is just for church. And sometimes those of us who work in the church like we do propagate this fallacy that the anointing is just for those of us in the church. No, the anointing is for everyone. It's all children of God. It, it, it's in the marketplace, everywhere they go. When a, when a businessman makes a deal, he, he he needs to be anointed to make that deal. When, when a woman is working in a career somewhere, she needs to be anointed in that career. And, and I, I want uh, people to say, wow, that service pastor was so anointed. The sermon was anointed. The worship was anointed. I wanna hear that 52 times a year, But but more than hearing that 52 times a year, I want to hear it seven days a week from the people out there. I wanna hear it from you seven days a week in your job. I wanna hear from people in our church that come up to me and say, hey, pastor, I was doing this deal and I felt anointed by God in making this deal. I want men to walk in and go, hey, pastor, I was talking to my son and while I was talking to my son and teaching my son, I felt anointed while I was dealing with my kid and, and while I was uh, addressing an issue in his life or with my daughter. Uh, I was trying to work on this marriage issue, God, and I felt anointed by God to work in and through my, my marriage issues issues. It's what we're praying for in our church. And it's what I'm praying for 2019 in this coming new year, that that it would be uh, abundant and extravagant all all over our church and all over the people in in our churches. The the second thing I want to point out to you real quick is that the anointing is costly. In fact, you can write it down this way. A costless anointing is a Christless anointing. That many spices and that much oil is pretty daggum pricey. And, and you get that or to collect that out in a desert it had to even cost more, right? So it costs a lot. It's very, very expensive. You mix that stuff up, it's over 10 gallons in volume, 10 gallons of it. And, and you go online right now and try to buy these essential oils. I, I don't know what the most expensive oil, some of you who deal, is it rose oil? Like 200 bucks for a little thing like this, right? And, and I read, or somebody told me, I think gospel told me that you can buy a, an oil drum of rose oil. I don't know what you would do with an oil drum of rose oil, but it's $44,000, for a drum of, of, of rose oil. And, and so think through this. People are selling this anointing oil o- online. You can buy it at the store, but, you know, $10 for an ounce or whatever it is. But, but when you add up all these spices, if you were to go to the grocery store and buy all these spices and put a gallon of quality oil in it together, this concoction is about $10,000 in, in today's terms. And if I asked you, by the way, how much is that oil, like I just did, Bree was like, I think it's 200 bucks. She, she's going to put a dollar amount on it. If we said, how much is this oil, each of the ones, somebody's selling these essential oils, they're going to put a dollar figure on, on each of these oils. But ask the olive how much it costs. It's a whole different perspective, isn't it? That that olive was shaken out of its comfort zone and, and off that tree. And it was crushed, and it was pressed, and it is costly. And I just want you to hear me say today the anointing will cost you something. There's purity part of the cost. There, there's humility. You know, James says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. That there, There's repentance. That there, there is instant obedience. There, there is a cost to the anointing. And sometimes young people will look at me and say, in a private setting of, hey, will you pray for me? I just want your anointing. And I just want to say to you, that's offensive. You want in one moment what God took 47 years to put in me and on me. That's ridiculous. You can't skip the cost involved in this thing. There is a crushing and a pressing that is required. And if you want God to lead you through something where you can lead something, you have to be willing to walk through something with God and trust him all the way through it and come out the other side of it, listening to him and obeying him and doing it his way. You want an anointing on your life. You walk through the crushing and you walk through the pressing. There's a book in the Bible, the Old Testament called, Hosea and at one point early in the book it says and the spirit of God comes like a moth and then there's another section in the book several chapters later and he comes like an eagle And a few chapters after that, it's like he comes like a lion. Do you see what God's word is trying to communicate? He comes like a moth. That's as intrusive as the spirit of God wants to be in your life. He wants this conversation and this intimacy that he just flutters into your heart and into your life like a little moth. It's not going to bite you. It's not going to sting you. It can't even harm you. If you leave it in your closet for a decade, it may ruin a piece of clothing, but it's not going to hurt you. It's a moth. But when you disobey or you disregard the little moth flutter, then the next time he comes like an eagle. There's a big difference between a moth and an eagle. But you disregard the eagle, it says he's going to come as a lion. Now there's a big difference even between an eagle and a lion, right? In fact, the worst part of the whole book is that if you disregard the lion, God says, I'm going to withdraw. That's scarier than the lion. You ought to be terrified at forfeiting the anointing of God on your life and God withdrawing his hand from you. And it's like you saying uh, to your children, your kids just keep begging and begging and begging, can I, can I, can I, I said no, I said no, I said no, and they just keep begging, and eventually you're like, just go do it. And as a parent, when you say that with your children, you're not giving them permission to do it, you're daring them to do it. And, and it's sometimes we, we say, God, hey, can I, can I, can I, can I? And he's like, no, 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 can I, can I, go. Do what you want to do. But I'm not going with you, which is terrifying for the child of God, that that he's not going to go with us. David said in Psalm 16, verse 6, that he has placed the lines around my life in pleasant places. There are lines around your life as a child of God. There are more lines around your life as a minister in a church. There are lines around. But God put those lines for you in pleasant places. Why? Because outside of those lines are lions, that will devour you and will come after you. And how many of you know today there's a difference between a service and an anointed service? How many of you know there's a difference between uh, uh, singing and anointed singing? There's a difference between uh, prayer and anointed prayer. There's a difference between a pastor and an anointed pastor. There's a difference between a mother and a father and an anointed mother and a father. The anointing is not cheap. It is choice. And the choice that you have is whether you're willing to follow Jesus and, and to chase after him. And the anointing is not for sale. It's only for trade. It's only received in a barter by taking the old life and exchanging it for the new life. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. He traded his life for our lives, and we have this choice of trading our old life for a a new life, an anointed life. And the anointing is abundant, and the anointing is costly. Thirdly, I I want you to see the anointing is fragrant. Look, Look at the list of spices. Myrrh, cinnamon, calmus, and cassia. Myrrh is, is, uh, it's like a sap. It's mentioned other places, right? Remember it's mentioned at the birth of Jesus. It's mentioned at the burial or the crucifixion of Jesus. It's like a sap, but it has a great fragrance to it. And it's used in, in ancient days to make incense. It had a purification effect to it. It was for purity, myrrh. And the Bible says that Christ offered his body. I think it's Ephesians 5, that he offered his body as a fragrant offering uh, for us. Cinnamon. You, you all know that one, right? That we, we know what cinnamon is. And some of us love cinnamon. Some of us detest cinnamon. I, I, I love it, but I'm not into the cinnamon in like pumpkin spice latte. That's not what I want, like Big Red or a hot tamale cinnamon. But, but some of us love cinnamon. Cinnamon is sweet, and the point is, it's the opposite of bitterness. You remember in Acts chapter eight when uh, that guy Simon was trying to buy the anointing and was trying to buy the healing power, and Peter looked at him and said, "Shame on you!" And he, at the end of that story in Acts chapter eight, he says, "You are full of a spirit of bitterness." The sweetness that comes with cinnamon is the opposite of bitterness. Calmus is also called uh, sweet flag. That's another name for it, sweet flag. And it's used to make perfume from and medicine. It's extremely expensive. That's why perfume is so expensive that it has this aroma. It's expensive like worship that is valuable to Jesus. Remember the story where the lady came and broke the alabaster jar. That's the word that's used in that perfume that was poured out, the nard and the, and the perfume that was poured out on the feet of Jesus. It was costly. It was expensive. That cassia, is a lot like cinnamon, but, it, but it's sweet, and it's used to make candy. And it's produced in the roots of trees, which is a great application. The, the roots grow down deep. roots roots grow in the dark places. Roots grow where there is no light. It's all about abiding. Where Jesus said in John 15, 5, that those who abide in me and stay close to me, you you are like the, the branch and I am the vine. You just stay close and I will flow through you. And it's a process, by the way. And you cannot rush the process of anointing. And by the way, a great litmus test for those of you who are impatient about the anointing and what's next in your journey. Listen, you're getting close to being ready for the next stage of your anointing and the next stage of your development when you're done rushing the process. As long as you're rushing the process, you're not ready for where it is that God wants to take you next. And here's the point. People knew when Aaron was coming. You dump. That on an individual, people knew he was coming. They could smell him through the tent. What's that smell? It's the man of God. Here comes the anointed one. Here comes the one that has been anointed. You know, people, when they walk in the room, the atmosphere changes. It's the anointing of God. They just spread joy wherever they go. They just spread truth wherever they go. They just spread the contagious relationship with Jesus wherever they go. And, and then there's some people that come in the room and, and they just stink. Maybe not literally, maybe sometimes, right? But, but spiritually. And, and here's the deal. We all have a scent. And we all have a fragrance and we all have the potential to change the atmosphere in any room that we walk into. And the change that makes the difference, hear me, staff is the anointing of God. And when we have the anointing, we bring the sweet smell of the Holy Spirit wherever it is that we go. And and the priest not only had a a fragrance, he had an outfit. I mentioned it a moment ago. You remember the hymn of the outfit? You remember what was at the hymn? Anybody remember in the Bible? There, there, There were two things, a pomegranate and a bell. Every other one, bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, think through that for a moment. There was the sign, and there was the fruit. The bell was a sign, like prophecy or tongues or whatever, it's a bell, we know it's coming. And and there's fanfare, right? You need fanfare in the kingdom of God. There's many places in the Bible where God created fanfare. But it's gotta be balanced with the fruit, the, the fanfare without love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, patience, and self-control. That without the fruit, the fanfare is just a bunch of noise. Remember remember what Paul said? That, that if I had uh, the, the, the gifts of tongues and, and the prophecy, I don't, I'm misquoting this scripture, but, but I don't have love, which is the fruit. I am like a bell. They all understood it. I'm just a bell without the fruit. Because love is a fruit. You remember the high priest would go on the day of atonement, he would go into that holy of holies behind that veil. And, and you've heard the uh, historical truths. We don't find much of this in the Bible, but the historical truth is they would tie a rope around his waist in, in case he wasn't pure. And he went behind that veil, and the presence of God zapped him dead. And nobody could go in to get him. They, they would pull him out by, by a rope. But when he would go into behind that veil, and he would make the offering, and he would make the sacrifice. The Bible says he was to change outfits, but before he came back out. And when you change an outfit that has bells all the way around the bottom of it, people hear it and they know you're changing because of the bells. And they could hear it before they could see it because he was behind the veil. And when the sound came from behind the veil, you know what it meant? It meant the blood hit the mercy seat. You know what it meant? The priest is alive. You know what it meant? The offering has been offered. You know what it meant? You are free to walk with God. You are free to know God again. And Jesus, remember what he said to the disciples? Hey, don't leave Jerusalem. You wait for me in Jerusalem. And go back and read the text. You wait for me in Jerusalem until the power comes, until the noise comes. Until the noise comes, every Israelite would have understood that. And they are in that upper room. And what does the Bible say happened in the book of Acts? And a noise from heaven came. The high priest was behind the veil. And the noise from heaven came. And it meant that he was alive. He's not dead anymore. And it meant that the mercy seat had the blood laid upon it. It meant that the covenant with God had been created. It meant that you are now ready to enter into the presence of God and walk in his anointing. In this brand new covenant, the the anointing, one, one more, is holy. Here's the real point of this whole thing. It is holy. And we're moving into the heart of the text. And we're about to walk on holy ground. Look at what he says to Moses in the next verse verse 25. Yeah. Like a skilled incense maker, you blend those ingredients that we've been talking about to make a holy anointing oil. Holy. Holy. You, you know what holy means? Set apart. separated. it. Not, not like the world. We're different when we have the anointing on us. And he says, I want you to use this holy or or, or sacred oil to anoint the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the table and all of its utensils, the lampstand and all of its accessories, and the incense altar. He, He goes on to say, the altar of burnt offering and its utensils, the wash basin with its stand, consecrate them to make them absolutely holy. After this, whatever touches them will become holy. It was a symbol, this oil. It was a symbol of the abundance of God. His mercies are abundant and never ending it was a symbol of the high price that we pay to walk in the anointing but even more significant is the high price that jesus paid on calvary with the significance of his life it was a symbol of the fragrance the presence of god in our lives that creates a fragrance on us that's what's significant is the fragrance of god and we don't chase after the symbol we look to the significance you remember the authority that they questioned jesus questioned jesus about the smiha there's another place where jesus stood up and he said all smiha in heaven and on earth has been given to me and then he says and i give it to you you have the keys to the kingdom of heaven and it is up to us to walk in the anointing to walk it out and to live it out to walk it out every day to walk it out everywhere and and with everyone that we come in contact with it is it's up to us to keep it remember what paul said to his pastor protege uh, timothy he said fan it into flames Remember, Paul had laid hands on Timothy previous and he was anointed. There was this symbolic anointing that happened when Paul laid hands on Timothy. And later he comes back and says, and fan that thing into flame. What he means is you keep this thing going, you keep it burning, you keep it flowing in your life. And so as we get ready to respond, let me give you three more very practical, maybe four points. The anointing was to do. It was never just to have. There's no picture of God anointing somebody just to be anointed. He anointed him to be king. He anointed him to be prophet. He anointed him to be priest. There was a calling that that demanded the anointing. And the illustration is a car. A car has all of the tool, all the gifts, and all the uh, gadgets that it needs to go. The anointing is the gas. To give it the power to do what it was made to do, to do what it was gifted to do, and to do it at another level. You don't put gas in the car, that's not gonna go anywhere. You you don't just soak it up. It it, it is for something it's to do. Number two, the anointing was to flow. When you read the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, the first time we're introduced to the Holy Spirit, It says the spirit began to brood over the water or the spirit began to move in the Amplified Bible. The spirit began to move. We we, we use that phrase all the time. God, would you move? Would you move in our midst and, and and you flow with the moving of the Holy Spirit of God? Listen, if you won't flow and you won't move with the Spirit of God, you will quench the Spirit of God. It's to flow flow to what? From faith to faith, from glory to glory, uh, from addiction to freedom. Uh, You move from what God was doing to what God is going to do. And and you move with the Spirit of God. Psalm 23 says, he anoints my head with oil and my cup overflows. There is an overflow that happens. This thing runs down and, and all over you. By the way, the priest would wear linen. Because linen does not quickly absorb a stain. That's the reason we make tablecloths out of linen. That day, linen was the fabric of the servant. I love linen. I I would wear linen every day, all day, every piece of clothing. It just looks sloppy and wrinkled because it it won't hold the the press. But I love it. It's comfortable. But the reason you make a tablecloth out of linen is because it repels to some degree for some period of time. And so the priest would wear the linen robe, and the oil would be poured over his head and down his his beard, and the linen would not absorb it. It would flow down all the way to the hem of the garment and onto those. And there is a genealogical and there is a, a sequential flow of the anointing of God that it flows down the high priest through the lineage. It's a servant anointing flows on. Selfish people absorb all the anointing. But servants, it it flows from them to somebody else. It, It was, number three, effective. It was to be effective. And hear me, listen. We got every kind of tribe that makes up this church. We got people that come from cuckoo charismatics to mean as a snake fundamentalist and everywhere in between It's what I love about this church some of you come from all those different tribes and I've met people in every tribe who are anointed and some of them are hyper charismatic and some of them are the furthest thing from charismatic but you know what they all are effective The anointing makes you effective at at, at what you do and what you put your hands to. And one one more point, It, it was always for others. It was always for others. Just like the gifts of God are for others, right? They're not for serving yourself. It's for building the church. It's for building the bride. It's for other people. It's not for us. Listen, it's not so that we can be satisfied in our own ego and say, I'm anointed that's the exact opposite of anointed. I'm not talking about a false humility. I want you to walk in an anointing and say, I'm anointed. But it's not for me. It's for you. And it's for all of us. And it's for the people that God puts me in touch with. It's for everybody. The Bible tells us to acknowledge the Lord in all of our ways, and he will direct your